Last week we started a brand new series. Uh, we're studying the life of Joseph, one of my favorite Bible characters. I think my favorite is King David, um, and there's so much of Scripture that's that's uh, uh, devoted to King David. But Joseph has a, quite a bit of Scripture related as well, and and he's right up there as far as one of my favorite characters to study in the Bible. And so last week, what we did last week was we, we it was an introductory session where we just talked about what Joseph knew and, and his family background and that sort of thing. Because one thing we know is our family shapes who we are. Anybody here can, you can relate with that. You can say that a, a big part of who you are is, has to do with the family you grew up in. That, uh, that, and so we talked a lot about that. And we, we talked about, for example, you remember how we, we often don't think about it, but Jacob was born while they were still living with his uncle Laban, and and so he was there when uh, and, and witnessed as a as a small child J- uh, Jacob reconciling with his brother Esau, whose Esau had was out to kill him, and he saw this reconciliation and this forgiveness flow, and and then I can't help but think that that helped shape him as later on in his life when his brothers showed up in Egypt and he forgave them for what they did and. And there's just uh, uh, things like that all the way through. He, he knew about Abraham. Who knew that he knew the story of Abraham and how long Abraham waited for the promise um, for Isaac to be born. And so I, I can't help but maybe think that, that that helped him in the process when he was in Egypt as a, as a slave in the household of Potiphar, as in the prison uh, being falsely accused of rape, that he was able to hold on and say, I, I know I've heard from God, I have a promise just like Abraham did, and he had to wait many years for it to be fulfilled. So you see how these things could shape him over, the, over the, his lifetime. But the, the reality is that there are reasons why we are as we are. And, if, and one of the things I like about the Bible, and, and to me it actually says a lot about the truth of the Bible, the historicity of the Bible, the, uh, the uh, inspired nature of the Bible, uh, is that... It tells us stories, not just of people who came from good backgrounds and were had uh, had uh, you know all these good qualities with no faults. Um, see, if a human being was writing it and they were trying to make up a hero, the hero would never have any failure. But when I read about these characters in the Bible, I can see that that they weren't all people who came from good backgrounds who developed into strong men and women of God. And if that were the case, I think most of us would get very discouraged because we look at their lives and we'd say, what hope is there for me? I mean, I'm starting off so far off base, but that's not how the Bible approaches it. The Bible talks about life as it really is. Petty, messy, full of strained relationships, dysfunctional, unfair, and sometimes even even murderously violent. And that was what life was like for Joseph growing up in Jacob's family with, with its two wives and then two surrogate mothers, two concubines, so that there is in the family one husband and sort of four sort of wives, two wives for sure, and two concubines. And then there were, you know, 12, 13 children distributed among them. Well, we know more than that, actually, because we don't know how many daughters he had. But the family contained all the ingredients, all the ingredients for a psychological nightmare. And, uh, and so the story, as we get into it now, looking at Joseph himself, it, it begins by concentrating on three primary issues that, that uh, uh, combine to generate some deep antagonism between the, the Joseph's brothers and himself. The first one is, and we're going to read this in a moment, but is that Joseph brought a bad report about the sons of two of those surrogate mothers, two of the concubines. The second is that J- Jacob openly tra- treated Joseph as his favorite son. And the third, Joseph had dreams of supremacy over his brothers and parents. And not did he ha- only did he have the dreams, but he sh- related those dreams. He shared those with his family. So let's begin reading in Genesis 37. We're going to see these three things, then we'll just kind of go from there. Lord willing, we're going to get all the way through to verse 36 of this chapter tonight because it really all kind of fits together. Let's begin reading in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob, which is interesting because it starts off that, remember last week we talked about how Genesis, 
uh, sets off these different sections with that phrase, these are the generations of blank. So it starts off by saying, these are the generations of Jacob. And in other places, you would expect it to say, so-and-so begets so-and-so, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and all these things, but it doesn't do that. It jumps straight to Joseph. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy uh, with, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And jo Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of, his, of his other, uh, any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. We'll stop there now. So right at the very start of the story, we're, we're told a little story because he's beginning to tell us. He wants us to understand. The writers wants us to understand why his brothers, as we're going to see, have such hatred for him, such jealousy for Joseph. And so he starts by we're, we're told the story at the very beginning that explains some of this brother's antipathy toward Joseph. Um, Jacob had sent Joseph out with his brothers, at least, if not all of his brothers, at least we know that the, the sons of the, of the two concubines, Zilpah and, and, and Bilhah, uh, he sent them out with them, and, and afterwards he came back and gave a bad report about them. Now, we're not told what, the, what they did to earn, assuming they did earn it, what they did to earn the bad report, but we'll soon see that they share the negative assessment of their younger brother. They didn't like him being a tattletale. And uh, so they, that was something already that started off that there was something about him that drove them crazy. And some commentators, I'll say this, have suggested that Joseph was, uh, a, a quote, at best a spy reporting on request to his father about the deeds of his brothers. And they said that possibly even exaggerating his report to ingratiate himself with his father. But other scholars point out that the story of Joseph um, was, a, was a, uh, as a whole gives no evidence that he had such a character flaw. Uh, and so it, it, it also appears, it also appears that, uh, apparently our camera moved there on us. Uh, so uh, it, it also appears that, that Jacob could, could trust Joseph, but, but not them. So besides being a tattletale, Joseph also experienced his brother's anger, uh, uh, brother's anger as, the, as the favorite of their father, Jacob. And I uh, just want to say, if that camera keeps moving, you might have to tighten it a little bit. So if, it's, if it doesn't want to stay. We, we, we already know uh, from his past history that Jacob shows favorites. He plays favorites. Uh, all you have to do is look at the whole story. We went over it last week about the relationship, his relationship with Rachel and Leah and how he played favorites with Rachel and Leah was just constantly, uh, you know, living in this very sad situation. And in fact, Joseph's status is because, because he is the son of this beloved and departed wife, Rachel, because now at this point in time, uh, Rachel is, you know, it was, remember Rachel died at the at childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin, Joseph's younger son. So he had, he was already playing favorites, but Jacob's special love for Joseph was made public by giving him uh, the gift of an ornate robe. And so the, now traditionally this robe has, has been understood uh, to be a, a, a many colored robe. It's even translated that way in the ESV there. Uh, the NIV calls it a, a, an, an, an or, uh, ornately ornamented ro robe. But uh, uh, it's, it's really unlikely that it was a lot of colors because the, the Hebrew phrase that's used there, it's really impossible to make that mean that really the, that way, not in the way that we would think of it. But what is clear was that it, it was a very distinctive robe and it was probably a long sleeve uh, uh, and, and ornate uh, robe. One, one reliable Old Testament commentator, H.C. Leupold, uh, says this tunic was sleeved and extended to the ankles. And he, he draws that conclusion from the Hebrew word that's used to describe it, which is pasim, which means wrists or ankles. So 
what does that mean? Well, here, here's the significance of that. Well, you, you can't, especially when you're in a society where everything you're doing, you're not sitting at a desk. You can't work very well in a garment that has sleeves and extends all the way down your ankles, especially if it's a costly, richly ornamented robe. It would be like, like sending a welder to a construction site wearing a full-length mink coat. You'd be like, boy, that doesn't make sense. How, you're not going to be able to work in here with that. And, and in Joseph's day, the working garb was a short, sleeveless tunic. You've probably seen even pictures of that. You know, So it would be something basically from shoulders down above the knees, and it would have no sleeves on it. And the reason was because that left your arms and your legs free so that you could easily maneuver, you could move about, do whatever you need to do. And as you can imagine, by giving Joseph this elaborate full-length coat, his father was, was boldly implying, you, you, you can wear this beautiful garment because you don't have to work like your brothers, those brothers of yours. So, so that's already something that the brothers see that and they're saying, he's not expected to do the work that we're expected to do. But on top of that, such a robe in that culture may well have been associated with authority and with leadership. Uh, some have said that they were like priestly garments and that in, in that, that this is long before the law was given, and so it was sort of the, the priest of the home sense I, uh, of the idea behind it. But if that's the case, then it would have been taken as a symbol of J Jacob's designation of Joseph as the potential clan leader. Now, Joseph is not even close to being the eldest. He is way down the line when it comes to the ages of the, of the children. But, but whatever the exact meaning behind it, the gift of the robe served to set Joseph apart. Uh, it set him apart from his brothers, uh, and, and as a result, that just kept feeding their envy. Uh, because, you know, I'm sure that the brothers knew Joseph was Jacob's favorite, but then when he starts giving, giving him things like that, it's just right, it's in your face. You know what I'm saying? And so... Um, it, 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 and it was not so much just the robe itself. It was that it stood for the special love that the father had for their younger brother. And, and it really just had the effect of pouring gasoline on the flames of the, of the brother's hatred. It, it would have been uh, difficult, I think. See, interesting thing is we have to remember Joseph, while he has this unbelievable character and this, we have to remember Joseph was not sinless, you know, the only, the only person we, in the history that's ever been sinless has been Jesus. So Joseph had character flaws. Um, and, and so, and I think part of that probably stemmed from his early years during this time, because it would have been very, very difficult for Joseph as a boy to suppress pride at being his father's favorite. Because not only did the other boys know it, Joseph would have known that too. He, he's looking at his robe and he's saying, hey, look at me. And, and one can readily imagine that it led to resentment and spite and jealousy and, and in the end, even hatred on the part of his brothers. And in fact, that may have been, it's, I'm not going to, we're going to get to, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but that may have played into the fact that Joseph shared his dreams with his brothers. It may have been, I'm not saying it is, but it's possible that, that maybe Joseph was bragging a little bit, just saying, hey, guess what kind of dream I had? You know, rubbing it in a little bit more. But, but, you know, the thing about it is Jacob, of all people, should have known better and should have seen that this was an unwise move to favor his son. Because he himself, if you remember, was born into a family that was split over who loved whom and why. He, he, Isaac, his father, loved his older brother Esau. Now, they were twins, but he was older by a matter of minutes. Uh, but he loved him because he was the type of outdoor man and his mother, Rebecca, loved Jacob, and that rivalry just led to endless problems. In fact, to a, such a split that at one point in time, then Esau had sworn he was going to kill Jacob. So yet, as, as, uh, as often happens, Jacob did not learn from his own past experience. You see it all the time. You know, you'll see some young man who grows up in a home with an abusive dad, and he says, man, when I'm when I'm married, when I have kids, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. And they grow up and they end up doing exactly the same thing. You see it all the time where people don't learn from their own experience. And as a consequence, 
Jacob was condemned to see his preference for Joseph cause bitter and far-reaching dissension that, that just wrought havoc with his family relationships over many, many years. We need to know this is a lesson for us. Favoritism is a dangerous thing, especially in families. Favoritism involves preferential treatment of, of, some, of some over others, particularly when uh, in relationships that should be equal. For example, when it comes to children, they should all be treated with equal love in word and deed. Now, that, that is not to say that, they are, that, you, that you're, they're treated identically. Uh, because, you know, how many of you know, if you have more than one child, you know that every child is different, very different. And so, you know, and, and some children are more different than others, but that's a different story. But, uh, but uh, you know, for example, some children, they love wrestling. That's how they, you know, they just want to get down and wrestle and just rough house. And that's, that for them is, is an expression of love. And then other kids, that is not what they want. All they want is they just want to get up there. Maybe they just want to cuddle. They want to sit on your lap. And, and so you don't treat them all the same, but you love them all equally. And so I want to make that clear. Uh, and while we're talking about this, but the, the story of Jacob's family is told in such a way that it really becomes a warning to parents today about the dangers of favoritism. And if parents are honest with themselves, and they should be, they'll find that it is easy to fall into the trap of choosing favorites among children. Because the truth is, some children are easier than others, and some children are more pleasant to be around than others. Some children are um, much more challenging than others that's just the way it is and the temptation is to and i and i hope no nobody's here has ever done this but the temptation is to try to correct the behavior of the difficult child by heaping praise on the good one and then using his or her behavior as a standard for the unfavored child to emulate so you end up saying things like why can't you be more like fill in the blank it's the worst thing you could do it's the worst thing you can do uh, the, the the jacob narrative shows us the typical results of, of uh, such favoritism, and it does not make things better. It does not help the difficult child come along. It doesn't do anything. It just makes things work worse. In fact, it's bad for the favored child because the favored child becomes puffed up. They have this puffed up sense of themselves. Um, you know, I think you can see that some in jo jo Joseph's presentation of the dreams. And at the same time, it fuels the anger of the unfavored child toward the family as a whole. You know, and I've heard people say, kind of some along these lines, one might respond to this by, by saying, hey, uh, God shows favorites. What about God? I mean, he, he, he's, he's shows favoritism. After all, you know, he favored Abraham over others, and then he favored Isaac over Ishmael, and he favored Jacob over Esau. Doesn't, doesn't he favor Christians over everyone else? Well, let me just say this. If, if you say that, what you're doing is you're confusing chosenness with favoriteness. There's a big difference there. As we see, when you, if you read through the book of Genesis, you'll see that the chosen are not given preferential treatment. They still walk through a lot of junk. Abraham had to walk through a lot of stuff. He had to walk through years of, of barrenness. And, and, and indeed, the, the status of the chosen, if anything, means that maybe they even suffer a little more. You know, there are no ornate coats for God's chosen, but you'll find that there's famine and conflict and barrenness and struggles of all sorts. Um, as we've seen in the treatment of, of Ishmael and Hagar, uh, you remember she, they were cast out. They were not part of the of the chosen plan of God. But what we see in them is that non-chosen people are not cast off or neglected by God. They're not unloved by God at all. In fact, God went to them and, and made some very dear and precious promises to them. It, it, but God actually uses the chosen as his instruments for the spiritual benefit of all people. Then I mean, you look at the New Testament and we often read of God's love for all. What did John 3.16 say? For God so loved his favorites? No, the world. 
He loves everyone so much that he sent his son to die on the cross. So we, we see that God does not show favorites. Even though he chooses people for specific purposes, that's not the same as being a favorite. God is impartial. And, and Jacob took a very long time to grasp this. He, he imagined that because God had given him a special role in the seed project, we started talking call, call it that last week, that, uh, that in the garden, uh, God pronounced to the serpent that... Uh, You'll, you will bite the, the, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. That's, what, that's the part I'm going to want to get to. Um, and so Jacob is like, and he keeps getting narrowed down, and now he knows he's part of this whole project that God has. And so therefore, in his mind, it didn't matter uh, very much how he behaved. And he had to learn the hard way that God has no favorites. Uh, God, God had to teach Jacob that to be chosen for a special role did not mean that God would approve of his questionable corner-cutting methods of achieving his or even God's objectives for his life. Indeed, the truth is God has a right to expect better things from us, doesn't he? The Apostle Peter explains this to us by spelling out the implications of calling on God the Father, who, unlike Jacob, is utterly impartial. Let me read to you this passage and then and I want to talk about what it means, and then we'll move on in Joseph's story. It says, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. All right, now, if, if, if you were given a car uh, as a gift to help out because you couldn't afford to get one, it would be very rude and very ungrateful to go back to the giver of the car and begin to complain the first time anything went wrong with it, right? I mean, you, you, it would be really something. It would take some... So I don't know what it would be, what you'd call it, kutzpah, to go back to somebody who gave you a car for free and then start complaining, you know what, it needs brakes. I can't believe you gave me a car that needs brakes. You know, that would be so ungrateful. However, think of it like this, though. If, on the other hand, we spent good money, and nowadays it'd be a lot of money, at a car dealership for a car that proved to have a serious fault on the first day. Well, you know what? We would certainly complain to the dealer and we would feel that we had every right to do so. Why? Because we paid for it. Therefore, we expect it to run well. This is Peter's logic in this passage. You, you and I, if we are believers in Christ, have had a great deal spent on us. We, we have not been redeemed with, with corruptible or perishable things such as silver and gold, but we have been redeemed by the most expensive curse, currency in the universe, the blood of Christ. And since God has spent so much on us, He surely has the right to expect something from our lives, does He not? So let's, let's get back to Joseph. Jacob's favoritism of Joseph led to this overwhelming hatred and resentment in his brothers to the degree that it says they could not even speak to him peacefully. I read that, and the first thing I thought of is uh, that if Joseph's mother, if, or not Joseph, if the brother's mother, uh, mother's were, was anything like mine, uh, how many of you ever heard your, had your mom say something like this? If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, Right? So if, if their mothers were anything like mine, then that meant there were a lot of silent nights when it came to Joseph and his brothers. There is no good night, John boy, in their household, okay? There was none of that. They hated him because they could plainly see that their father loved him more than any of them, and they could plainly see that their father had plans for Joseph that would make him the leader of the clan. They were so angry, so jealous, and it was just not fair, which, by the way, if there's something I, I've told my daughters for their whole life, um, life is not fair. And the sooner you realize that, 
the sooner you'll, you'll get over expecting life to be fair and you'll just be able to move on in the process. But, but this is the situation that they found themselves in. But worse was yet to come. Worse was yet to come, and quickly. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and, and, and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when, they, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So, not only for these other things did Joseph's brothers hate him, but Joseph's brothers hated him for his dreams. Now, what's interesting, this is the first time in Scripture that we're told that a person had a dream. Earlier, we're told that God, uh, of God appearing to people in a dream, but that's not the case here. That's not what took place. Although it, it later uh, becomes clear that Joseph at some stage, possibly, possibly even from the very beginning, came to understand that God had sent his dreams. And so, you know, when you talk about dreams, this is an important thing to know. There's, there's an important difference between dreams that owe their origin to God and dreams that are produced by subconscious mental activity. You know, sometimes, have you ever had a dream that you're like, the next morning you're like, okay, that was the pizza last night. <laughs> you know, that's the way it is. Paul warns us about these kind of things. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetic practices or the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and, and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. He does not hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with growth from God. And, and you know, we have people today in, our, in the Christian world They'll get on Facebook, they'll get on YouTube, they'll get on every, you know, on TV, and they'll start telling you about their dreams and their visions and their prophecies and these sort of things. And, and listen, I believe God speaks in all of those ways. I believe that. But it is one thing when God sends dreams, and it's a completely different thing when people imagine that every dream that they have is some sort of has some sort of spiritual significance. And so what happens is sometimes these people get caught up with this stuff. In the end, they become unbalanced and they become more interested in their dreams and visions. They talk more about their prophecies, quote unquote, than they do about the scripture. And they're more interested in those things than in reading scripture or in prayer. And such imaginings can lead to spiritual and moral shipwreck. I, I read about a man today who, while he was in university, he sold his Bible because he said he did not need it since God communicated with him in dreams and visions and told him what to do. Um, in fact, the sad part of that story is, is he said that in a dream, God told him to leave his wife. And there's the problem. You've got you to gotta be tied to the scripture because God is not going to communicate something that is in, in, in conflict with something he has already said. Only a human would do that. Have you ever said something that contradicted yourself? Yeah, sure, we all have. Not God. He's perfect. He, that's not going to happen to him. Uh, so, uh, so dreams do happen, and God gave Joseph this dream. Now, I want to say in addition to this, although dreams do occur in the Joseph narrative, one of the most striking things is is that God could have at any time saved many people from long drawn out pain and distress by speaking to them in a dream. For, for instance, God could have sent Jacob a dream that Joseph was still alive, couldn't he? He could have done that, but he didn't. Joseph could have had a third dream. He could have had another dream that was that explained in more detail what was going to happen and how he was going to come through it all. And in the end, he could have had a dream to see where he was going to end up, but he didn't. 
And part of that is, is that it, it, there's a lesson there for us in that, in that uh, if, I have the, if, I, if I have all the details beforehand and I know exactly what's going to happen, then why in the world would I need any faith? The only reason I need faith is because I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I know, I know the end result. I know in the end I'm going to be with Jesus. I know all of those things. But if I'm walking through some sickness, I don't know whether God's going to heal me in this life or, or in the next. I don't, I don't know the details. I don't know those sort of things. But it's, it's faith. And it's, and it's walking in that faith that led Abraham to believe God, even though he saw no evidence of having a child. And God said it was that faith that God credited to him as righteousness. So with Joseph, though, here, God sent the dreams. Then Joseph told them to his family. Now, was that wise? Why, why didn't he just keep it to himself and save himself a lot of trouble? Maybe if he had been a little older. How many of you know? And I'll say usually, not always. Usually with age comes wisdom. Now, now there are some exceptions to that. I've known some people that got older but not wiser. Uh, and so maybe, maybe it was because of his youth and maybe it was because of maybe a little pride or, or something. I don't know. But, you know, some think it was that Joseph was driven by ambition and that's why he told his dream to spite his brothers and make them envious. I don't know if, if I would go quite that far to say that. But, and then some skeptics even go further and, and say that Joseph's dreams were simply projections of his own ambitions. And then others remind us that Joseph lived in a culture and in a family in which dreams had played a role in the past. Because he, he was only 17, maybe he told the, uh, the dream in an unguarded natural way as something of interest that had happened to him. And I mean, after all, the first dream was about sheaves of, of, of grain and, and, and the brothers were shepherds. So what, what, what could this possibly mean? The, the problem was, of course, that at one level, when you read it, the meaning of the true dreams was blindingly obvious. In his dream, Joseph had seen his brother's sheaves bowing down to his. Now, there was no indication of how and when all of this might happen or what exactly it would all involve and how you would get to that point. But the basic thrust was very clear. Joseph will assume predominance of some kind among his brothers. And of course, they hate him for this, what he says. They understand the dream to mean that Joseph will rule over them. That's what he, they said to him in response. They said, are you trying to say you're going to reign and rule over us? And, and, and maybe, think about this. Think about the family history. He's their younger brother, favored by their father. Maybe they're pretty anxious about this whole idea. Maybe they're afraid he's right because they know that their father was the younger chosen of Isaac. And, and that Isaac himself was the younger child of Abraham and was chosen. Then the second dream makes an even bolder claim. In the second dream, Joseph sees the sun, the moon, and, and 11 stars bowing to him. And the, the dream was clearly meant to predict Joseph's eventual rule over his brothers and indeed over his father and mother, which, by the way, was an outrageously unthinkable idea in Middle Eastern culture. Jacob himself when he heard this, expresses alarm at the claim of this dream. But the narrator informs us that he also kept the matter in his mind. In other words, he does not reject the, the, the idea out of hand. It, and it may well be, it may have just reminded him uh, that many years before he had had a dream of a ladder from earth to heaven, that he had been visited by God in, in a dream. And, 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 he had, and in that dream, it was accompanied with a promise from God to go with him. And that dream had come true. And so in his mind, perhaps God had something special in mind for his favorite son. But his brothers, on the other hand, they just grew in their jealousy and hated him all the more. Well, their fury broke to the surface and they just taunted Joseph sarcastically. sarcastically. Are you going to reign over us? You, you puny little thing. You're a daddy's boy. You know, you, who do you... It was irritating enough to have Joseph parade in front of them with that hated cloak on. And it was, but it was maddening to listen to his dreams of power and authority over them. To, to the brothers, you need to understand, this is what the writers trying to help us understand what was going on. To them, it just seemed as if this upstart brat 
is asserting his superiority over them. They just simply couldn't handle the idea. It was so preposterous to them. And Joseph's brothers did not believe that he would rule over them one day. And we, we can understand that. We can understand that because at that early stage, there was no corroborating evidence to justify Joseph's claims. Now, many years later, many years would pass before they would finally get that evidence, but they would eventually get it. One day, they would have to handle the reality of confronting that power over them. And, and, and in, in the flip side, when we get there, we'll talk more about it. Joseph would have to learn how to handle the possession of that power. The, the future in the story, we're gonna, we all know because we've read it, the future will prove the dreams, dreams correct. Joseph will achieve high status am, among his brothers and, and even in relationship to his father. He will rule over all of them in ways far greater than probably any of them ever thought. They probably all thought just in the family setting, but it was much greater than that. H however, you know, think you probably, maybe you never thought of this, but the, what the brothers do not understand is that Joseph was going to be raised to that, to that high status in order to serve their interests. And Joseph, I don't think, even understood that he was going to be raised to that high status to serve. I don't think he really fully got it at that point in time either. They had no idea that the fulfillment of the dream that, that fired their hatred for Joseph would actually be central to their salvation. Because that dream being fulfilled is what allowed them to get the grain. And first of all, it allowed the grain to be there in the first place because Joseph was the one who gathered the grain. And then it was, and it allowed them to get the grain and survive. They would have starved to death if Joseph had not been raised to the place where he was. The irony is that they would, they would never understand it until they willingly did what they swore they would never do. That is to bow down to their brother. Well, sometime after this, Joseph's brothers went to, to pasture their father's flocks, but Joseph didn't go with them. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, here I am. So, in other words, I'll do whatever you want. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. So the brothers without Joseph had gone near the city of Shechem to pasture the flocks. We were told here the home base for Jacob's family at this time was Hebron. And, and they were, uh, remember they were pastoral nomads and, and they, they were following the available grazing uh, uh, land areas. And Shechem, where they went, that was the first Canaanite city that Abraham visited. He had built an altar there. And of course, more recently, and we didn't have time to go into this last week, but more recently, the family, Jacob's family, had fled Shechem after Simeon and Levi, two of Joseph's brothers, had massacred the men of the city. Uh, this is the place where their sister, Dinah, had been raped and where Simeon and Levi had killed all the men and raided the homes and property. I don't have time to go into it, but it was... One of those things that jo Jacob was not, he was not happy. He was upset, but he wasn't upset that he, he didn't show. It's really something. Jacob was really something about, you talk about a passive father. He was up, no evidence that he was upset that Dinah got raped. He was not, uh, no evidence that he was upset that, that uh, Simeon and Levi had uh, done these, this thing in revenge. He was upset because he said, it's going to make me look bad in this area, in this town. We got to get out of here now. And so what, this is sometime after that. So when Jacob realized where they had gone, he probably thought to himself, because of what Simeon and Levi did to the people of Shechem, my boys may be in danger if they're up near, near Shechem. So Jacob ordered jo Joseph to go and check on his brothers and report back. And what, one can only imagine how the brothers would feel about this, considering the bad report Joseph had given his father at an earlier time. And one wonders what Jacob was even thinking, or if he was thinking at all. I mean, was he totally oblivious to this situation? How, how could he avoid seeing the seething hatred and jealousy within his own household? He had, had he no concept 
of the, of the danger into which he was sending his favorite son into? Well, in reality, he set Joseph up for what, what was about to happen. And, and, and we're about to witness an explosion of pent-up emotions. In spite of the obvious tension in the family and the growing hatred of which Jacob must have, he must have been fully aware, he foolishly decided to send Joseph to see how his brothers were faring. And as, as Joseph left home, little did Jacob know that he would, think about this, he, little did he know that he would not see his son again for 20 years. Verse 15, Jake, Joseph left and says, And a man found him wandering. He, he went up there, couldn't find them. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So after walking, uh, we know it was over 50 miles, Joseph arrived at Shechem, where his brothers were supposed to be, but they weren't there. And Joseph found out where they were only by bumping into a man who had overheard them discussing their plans. Here again, you just see the sovereignty of God, how he just happens to run into a guy who happened to overhear his brothers saying where they were going to be. And all of this, think about this, all of this to get Jake, Joseph to this place where he's going to face betrayal because God had a plan. It was going to be a very rough road, but he had a plan to preserve the nation of Israel. So they had, his brothers had, in fact, moved several miles on from Shechem to a place called Dothan, which is another day's walk, about 13 miles, saving him, taking him even further from home and from the protection of his family. Dothan was due west of Shechem. And significantly for the rest of the story, Dothan was on the international trade, trade route that ran north down uh, from the north down to Egypt. Verse 18. They saw him, the brothers, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. How did they see him from afar? Well, it was probably the, the coat. And he's there like, nobody's got a coat like that. I, we know who that is. Here he comes. So they said, let's kill him. Verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will, uh, and we will see what will become of his dream. So we can see here the dreams are right at the root. That's more than they can handle. They've had enough of this guy. Not only is he favored, but now he's telling them dreams about how he's going to rule over them. He said, so they said, let's kill him. Let's see what happens with this dreamer's dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he, and he said that, it says, to, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their to his father. Uh, which, by the way, Reuben was not, you know, it makes it sound like Reuben was such a great guy. He may have been trying to get, gain some favor with his dad because one of the things we didn't cover last week, we didn't have time, was at one point in time, Reuben went to his father's concubine and, and, and slept with her and dishonored his father. So he's already living in shame. He's dealing with that. So maybe he's wanting to get, you know, something to get in with his dad again. But, but, uh, we read the story here and the narrator, he shifts, the narrator shifts from following Joseph to reporting the action from the viewpoint of the brothers. And he, and he begins with them spotting Joseph coming toward them from a distance. And this gives them time to plot to do away with him. And as I said, they don't even refer to him by his name. They dehumanize him by calling him that dreamer calling to mind Joseph's galling dreams that asserted his future superiority over them. And their, their immediate reaction, this is how much they hate him. Think about this. They didn't have to wonder about it and think what they wanted to do. Their immediate reaction was, let's kill him. And this was no idle talk. Because as we talked about earlier, Levi and Simeon had already proven themselves capable of multiple murders to defend their sister. And so here's Joseph. He's taking this long journey to see how his brothers are faring so he could bring a report to his father. But 
They were tired of his reports. They were tired of his dreams. They wanted to ensure that they would never, there would be no more ever. But they didn't all feel the same about what was to be done with Joseph. At least one, Reuben, as I said, not to be put on too high of a pedestal, but he was the eldest. He attempted to buy time for Joseph at least. Uh, and perhaps because he was the eldest, and I think there's evidence we'll see in a moment, that this is the case, that he felt some sense of responsibility for his younger brother uh, and that he knew that he was going to answer for it if something happened. Uh, but he says, uh, hey, look, let's just let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit and leave him. We, you know, let's just teach him a lesson, but there's no reason for us to kill him. Meanwhile, as we read, Reuben was thinking that he would return later and rescue Joseph and then take him back home to his father. Look at what happens next, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. It's not that he's a humanitarian. He's just very pragmatist, very pragmatic in this situation. He's like, hey, why should we bear this kind of guilt and have to worry about being caught? Let's just sell him, and we can make some money off of it. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So obviously the brothers must have agreed with Reuben's plan in the first place, but, but notice the first thing they did when Joseph did arrive. What's the first thing they did? They stripped him of the robe. That hated robe of special favoritism was the first thing to go. Get, take that robe off, they said. It, it was as if they were saying, take that thing off. You're, you're no better than us. Get, get that thing off. You're not going to rule over us. Jason, J, Joseph's special robe would protect him no longer. No, his father couldn't protect him. It must have been a horrific shock to realize that he had seriously underestimated his brother's hostility, hostility and and he was clearly going to suffer, maybe even die for it. He was, he was, and he was terrified. He was terrified. We don't, we don't hear, read about it here so much, but you know, after stripping of the robe, they threw him into this dry cistern. And such cisterns or pits, they were hollowed out in the ground. They were usually bottle-shaped with the neck at the top, and it would be, because of that shape, be impossible for Joseph to climb out. And to leave him in that cistern would... Would, would doom him to a slow, agonizing death from exposure and hunger and thirst. And then, then the callousness. I mean, listen, if you think our world is callous today, you need to understand this evil has been around for many, many, many years. Because the brothers then sat around the rim of the, at the top of the cistern and callously ate their food. They threw him in a pit after conspiring to murder him, they said, you know, I'm hungry. Let's eat. And all the while inside the cistern, their teenage brother was crying his heart out. Why do we know that? Because later, when they're standing before Joseph many years later, and they're speaking to each other in Hebrew, they don't know that Joseph can understand them. They later recalled with bitter regret in Genesis 42, 21, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They sat around and ate while their brother was begging for his life and they didn't listen. Fortunately for Joseph, and I guess in a sense you could say fortunately, in light of their brother's original intentions, they they see a caravan working its way down the international highway from the north, and the caravan was made up of Ishmaelite traders on their way to sell spices and balm and myrrh in Egypt. And, uh, 
And, and so they see them coming, and it's at this point that Judah steps to the, to the fore for the first time. Uh, he, he's the fourth born son of Leah and, and Jacob, but we, we've already seen that Reuben, as well as Simeon and Levi, have sullied their reputations with Jacob. So therefore, Judah is a potential leader among the brothers, and he offers a plan by which they can get rid of their annoying brother with, without killing him. And in the process, they can even make a profit. Judah, who, who will eventually play a key role in the story and, and in world history even, suggests selling Joseph to the Ishmaelite caravan. Thus, by doing so, they can avoid taking blood guilt on themselves and they won't need to cover up that crime, although they're going to have to cover up his disappearance. Judah's brothers listened to him, uh, to his idea, and they, and, and they decided to do that rather than stick with Reuben's suggestion, who happens to be absent for reasons unknown. And they sold their brother into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Let's read what about the cover-up. Let's read after that. Verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors, and, and they brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. Listen to them trying to act all dumb. I don't know, is this Joseph's robe? What do you think, Dad? And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters, which by the way, that we know that there was more than just Dinah, uh, that rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, or I will go to the grave uh, uh, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had, had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So for some reason, Reuben was not present when Judah made his suggestion about selling Joseph into slavery. Perhaps maybe it was just his turn to watch the, to tend the, the flocks. But when he heard the news, he immediately panicked. He, he tore his clothes in grief and worry. But listen, he was, it was not grief and worry uh, about Joseph necessarily, but it was about the consequences for himself as the oldest brother who, who was ultimately responsible for what happened to Joseph. He said, the boy is gone. How can I go home? Where, where, where am I going to go now? What, what are we going to tell dad? I'm the oldest. What are we going to do? He was worried about himself. And for that reason, they executed a cover-up. They said, don't worry, Reuben, we got it all figured out. They dipped Joseph's distinctive, ornate robe into some goat's blood and took it back to Joseph. And they, they lied to him without telling a lie. See, here's the thing. People think a lie is stating an untruth. No, a lie is any, anything that's said with the intent to deceive. They never said anything to Jacob that was untruthful. They just gave something to him and said, hey, we found this. I guess they did say that. That was untruthful. They, they, they didn't find it. They made it sound as if he, they hadn't seen Joseph. But, uh, but they, they, they went to, to Jacob and they, they said, uh, uh, you know, hey, is this, is this your son's coat? And they let him come to the conclusion on his own, that he had been killed by an, a wild animal. And their request to Jacob uh, uh, it probably indicates that they were claiming that, that Joseph never actually met them, that they had never seen him alive. And, because if, if they had seen him, they would know that it was their brother's garment and not need Joseph's, uh, Jacob's affirmation. And so in this way, they allow Jacob to reach his own conclusion of what happened. And when Jacob says, oh, an animal got him, they're like, oh, that's probably it, Dad. That's probably it. To him, to Jacob, it was obvious he had been killed by some ferocious animal. And Jacob immediately plunges into grief, ripping his clothes, donning sackcloth, and in utter hypocrisy. You hear, did you see this part? In utter hypocrisy, they're watching their, sad, their dad mourning, deeply grieving, 
putting on sackcloth, rip, renting his clothes, all of these things. And in utter hypocrisy, not just his daughters, but the sons themselves come to comfort him. Oh, dad, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. When they themselves are the cause of the grief. Jacob had to endure the bitter fruit of his son's deceit for many years, during which time God did nothing to alleviate his pain. As we said earlier, God could have appeared to Jacob at any time and told him that Joseph, that Joseph was still alive, but God remained silent. And, and, and there may be a lesson in that for us. We will, we will not always see what God is doing in the moment. Jacob could not see that, that his sorrow was not going to last forever. He could not possibly begin to understand that he was going to see his son alive again. He couldn't see that. He could not possibly understand that God was working a plan through this whole circumstance and through everything that was going on that was much, much bigger than simply his own comfort and his own happiness and him having his son with him. And we too have to remember that there are times in our lives when God is at work doing something, but in the meantime, while he's at work and we don't see what he's trying to do, we don't see the big picture. In the meantime, we're experiencing nothing but pain and sorrow and hardship, and we don't get it. Someday though, although it may not be in this lifetime, we will see, we will understand that it was all part of a larger tapestry. How many of you have ever seen uh, like a, a tapestry, a large tapestry, a rug that's woven? It, it, it's like we're living on the wrong side of it. If, if you look at the back of one of those things, it looks like a jumbled mess. You know what I'm talking about? Just looks like colored strings everywhere. And it's like, man. But what you don't see is that when you get on the other side of it, it, it was is this beautiful mural, this beautiful picture that was created. And that's what it's going to be like. One day we'll see it. So one day we'll understand it and we'll be able to see the beauty of God's design. But in the meantime, what do we do? We wait in faith. We walk in faith. We do what God has told us to do in faith. Jacob's family has begun to disintegrate. He's lost his favored wife. And now he's lost his favorite son. And Joseph's brothers maintain their conspiracy of silence for years. Years. And thinking about Joseph, it, it, it's just hard to imagine what it must have been like for a teenage boy to be so hated by his brothers that they first plan to murder him, but then they settle for selling him into slavery. Joseph, still only a teenager, found himself being carried along in an Ishmaelite caravan traveling south to Egypt. Th think of his feelings as he arrived at a slave market where men and women were openly paraded and sold like cattle to the highest bidder. The narrator ends this episode by informing the reader that the traders made it to Egypt where they then sold Joseph to Potiphar, who is a high-ranking Egyptian official. Specifically, he was in the military. We're told he was captain of the guard. Here's a side note. I don't know if I'll add anything. If this, we'll talk about it later. But, uh, but captain of the guard, the literal translation of that in Hebrew is chief butcher. I don't know what that says about Potiphar. But, you know, all of that immediately makes us ask how this man, this young teenage boy all alone, how will he maintain the vision? How can he, can he maintain what God has, has shown to him? He, he's now 200 miles away from home, which in, in that day and age may as well be across, all the way across the world. And he's surrounded by an alien world in a culture he doesn't understand, worshiping gods that he doesn't, love, that he doesn't believe in. How will he keep his faith in God alive? That's the question. That's what the rest of the study is going to get us into. 
But for us tonight, let's just close with this whole idea of understanding that sometimes life is hard. Sometimes you go through valleys. Sometimes, sometimes it's unbearably painful. But it's in those times that we have to trust that God's at work, have faith in Him, and trust that He's weaving a picture that we will see someday. And one day, we'll see the grand design of God and marvel at His beauty. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the lessons we can learn by looking at the story of Joseph. And Lord, I pray as we read this and we think about the, the things that Joseph went through, the betrayal, the, 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 the sorrow, the, I'm sure, feelings of hopelessness, God, just remind us that when we face those things that we know the end of Joseph's story, and that is that your plan prevailed in his life in spite of anything else. And God, help us to apply that to our lives and realize that no matter what's happening, no matter what we're walking through, if we put our faith in you, if we trust you, your plan will prevail. We thank you for that assurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.